It is no deed of mine that our passage this morning is Jesus dealing with some Sadducees on the question of resurrection. The timing is all the Lord's. In our text, it's the middle of the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus began the week with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. He and his disciples were staying in the little town of Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. And they would walk into Jerusalem each day and head back to Bethany in the evening. Each day was full of the only way we can describe this is remarkable encounters in a city that was overflowing with hordes of people coming in from the countryside to celebrate the Passover. His popularity with the people put the Jewish religious leaders in a very uncomfortable position. The chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees hated Jesus because in this particular week he had already publicly exposed their hypocrisy, their pride, and their self-righteousness. And he was admired by the people even though he had never received the Sanhedrin's commendation and approval to do everything that he was doing. But on top of all this, he was making the incredible claim to be the Messiah and had even publicly humiliated these religious leaders on Monday in the very place they considered their own special turf, the temple grounds where he asserted his authority in a way that they could not deny. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus then told three scathing parables directed at these particular leaders. Mark records one of those three, the parable of the tenants, in which renters of a vineyard kept beating up and then killing the servants sent to check up on things by the owner of that vineyard. They even killed the son of the owner. The message was crystal clear. These parables were told in the temple courts with masses of people listening as well as the religious leaders. So the public humiliation was enormous. There is no doubt whatsoever that these religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus at any cost. But they can't just kill him. That would be murder. So their plan is to catch Jesus teaching something, anything that they could say was blasphemy, which was a capital offense. Or to catch him saying something subversive against Rome which would get him arrested and executed as an insurrectionist. Or, at the very least, to get him to say something that would discredit him in the eyes of all the people who were marveling at his authority in opening up the Old Testament scriptures. From Mark 12, verse 13 through verse 34, we see three attempts by the religious leaders to carry out this plan. All of these attempts to ensnare Jesus are put forward really as questions. The first question was, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar 
in verses 13 through 17. And this is what we covered last week. How can a rational people actually believe in a physical resurrection is the second question. Verses 18 through 27. And that's what we're looking at this morning. The third question, the third attempt to entrap Jesus is what is the greatest commandment in verses 28 through 34, which will be next Sunday, Lord willing. Little did these men realize that their clever plan posed absolutely no threat to Jesus and his plan at all. He would answer them on his own terms, not theirs, and actually turn each question into an opportunity to teach the truth. Because remember, the crowds were listening to these exchanges. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, here in the second attempt to trap Jesus, the first thing we should notice is who's asking this question. In verse 18, we see it's this is the Sadducees. These were the theological liberals of the day. This group did not believe in the resurrection or really any spiritual reality. Acts 23.8 says that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or angels or spirits. In other words, they were materialists, only believing in what they could see and feel and touch and hear. And this is a very convenient belief system. Because if you do not believe in a life after death, then you have no other motive 
than to just live any way you please in the here and now. This should sound very familiar to us in the world that we live in. No life after death means no punishment or reward. So they say, basically, live any way you want. This outlook showed up especially in the Sadducees' attitude towards power and influence over other people. They were the smallest of the Jewish sects, but by far the wealthiest and the most powerful and influential. They were the aristocrats of Judaism, controlling the temple and its operations, including the priesthood. Almost all the high priests and chief priests were Sadducees. In fact, the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court, was made up mostly of Sadducees. So the question for us is, can you see now why the Sadducees wanted Jesus out of the picture? They were the ones hurt the most when he cleansed the temple. So even though the Pharisees and Sadducees despised each other, they were united on the goal of getting rid of Jesus. And since one of the main issues between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was this issue of a bodily resurrection, we don't see any Pharisees front and center with the Sadducees for this particular question, do we? The Sadducees thought, They had the perfect scenario and the perfect question to entrap Jesus. A hypothetical situation that everyone could see was patently ridiculous. A hypothetical situation that proved their point that there was no resurrection. You see, the Pharisees, this might surprise most of us, had never been able to prove without a doubt from the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, that Moses taught there was a resurrection. So the Sadducees were more than confident that Jesus would be stumped and trapped because they assumed that Jesus agreed with the Pharisees' resurrection doctrines. It's also important to note that while the Sadducees were theological liberals in the sense that they would not acknowledge the worth or authority of any oral or written or even any rabbinical traditions, they did, however, very strangely, hold on to the five books of Moses in a very harsh and legalistic way, even viewing themselves as the preservers of the faith. How they got to the point of observing the Pentateuch while mostly ignoring the rest of the Old Testament is really a mystery. But it seems as though they regarded the Pentateuch as primary and the rest of the Old Testament books as just commentary on the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Since Moses in those five books did not teach anything directly about the resurrection, they denied it. 
The Sadducees question this hypothetical situation here in verses 19 through 23. A woman had been married one at a time to seven brothers, each husband dying and then the next brother would marry her. In other words, she'd been left a widow seven times. And then the Sadducees asked their question in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now this scenario is based on Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, the law about what is called the Leverite marriage, which says that the brother of a man who died childless in ancient Israel should marry the widow left behind and care for his family and father a son to carry on the dead man's name. The Pharisees taught that the woman in the afterlife would be the wife of her first husband. And you can see the motive of the Sadducees because how many times did they increase the number here? The woman was, was widowed seven times, and they thought this would prove how ridiculous the idea of the resurrection was. But Jesus rebukes and answers them, both rebukes and answers. Well, they obviously didn't recognize that they were dealing with a man who was also God in the flesh, the living word the author of Scripture, the one to whom all of Scripture pointed. This was no problem for Jesus. It's another opportunity for his divine character to bust through the fog of these men's minds and shine brightly and clearly. The Creator is getting ready to set them straight. And because their intent was evil, And they had no intention or willingness to recognize him for who he was. Jesus rebukes them immediately. Remember, the crowd was gathering to hear this exchange. This was not the Sadducees meeting privately with Jesus somewhere. They probably, in their arrogance, expected Jesus to hear this question realize he was caught and trapped and just walk away humiliated and disgraced. But that's not what happened. Jesus said to them in verse 25, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So first, they did not know the scriptures, and second, they didn't know the power of God. This is like saying you are dead wrong and have no idea what you're talking about. That was my generation. Lately and in between, it's probably you are dead wrong. You are clueless about what you're talking about. This is a very, very strong statement. The Sadducees are getting ready to find out what the Pharisees had experienced so many times already. They were putting their own ignorance on display for everyone in the temple area to hear and see. 
That's what's going to happen. When Jesus said they were wrong, what exactly did he mean? Wrong here means to lead yourself off course or to stray from the truth. It often carries the idea of being cut loose from reality. Jesus is about to demonstrate the reality of his authority as he very simply explains from the Pentateuch that Moses did teach about resurrection. In verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus simply says, that God's incredible power is easily able to transform what is earthly into what is heavenly. It's no problem. In other words, why should anyone deny the resurrection because of the foolish idea that God is restricted to raising up bodies in exactly the same form as they were before they died. Like angels means that resurrected people will be spiritual in nature, deathless, glorified, eternal, but recognizable. Not angels, but like angels in these spiritual ways. And in just a few days, there will be more than 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus' own bodily resurrection. Eternity believers will be without sin, without wrong expectations, without questions, without any semblance or direction to cast doubt or worry or fear completely transformed with a new resurrection body specifically designed by God to operate for eternity in glorifying the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect attitudes, outlooks. It is a most glorious thought. Also notice here, As weird as our culture is, have you noticed how many people just assume that when you go to heaven, if you do, you become an angel? It's just not true. Angels are separate beings created by God for different purposes. Then he simply corrects their misunderstanding of Scripture. And instead of being grateful to finally see the truth, the Sadducees continued to rebel against it, thinking that they just couldn't be wrong. Jesus quotes here Exodus 3.6, quotes it in verse 26, part of verse 26 in our text. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But notice that before Jesus quotes from Exodus, what does he say at the beginning of verse 26? 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, Moses? Jesus says that by the time these words were spoken to Moses, the three great Hebrew patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had long since died. But God referred to his relationship to them how? In the present tense. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob indicating that they must then be alive in heaven. That was his simple proof. James Montgomery Boyce wrote here, and he almost wanted to put it in like 20-point font, black, underlined, italics, anything that would just jump off the page and hit you in the face. Jesus refuted the Sadducees by the tense of a single Hebrew word. In verse 27, how does Jesus summarize this? He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. Because they did not know the scriptures, and they failed to appreciate God's power, they had mistakenly rejected this doctrine as well as many other biblical doctrines and teachings. Jesus had just done in four verses. We need to hear this. He just did in four verses what the wisest, most respected, most learned Pharisees or scribes had never been able to do. Unequivocally prove the resurrection from the Pentateuch. And what was the response? In Matthew's parallel account, Matthew twenty-two thirty-three, he records, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished. We've seen this word before. It's an intense compound with a supercharged meaning, more intensive than any English translation can convey. It means to strike out, expel by a blow. We can't picture that. But found only in the sense of knocking one out of his senses, to strike astonishment, admiration, to be amazed. Can you picture that physically? Not knocked out, but knock something out. The Amplified New Testament translates it like this. They were astonished and overwhelmed with bewildered wonder. Struck out of their senses also works very well. What about the Sadducees? We have to go to the first verse of the next section in Matthew's account, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. The very first thing after this. Mark does not record this. 
Matthew says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. So we see here, this word silence means to muzzle. To forcefully restrict the opening of the mouth. Any of you ever want to do that to anything but your dog? Don't you just wish some power would just silence someone sometimes? Or yourself? Well, that's what this is getting at here. In other words, what that means is that they were verbally incapacitated by Jesus the Lord. Do you realize that's going to be the experience of people who have not trusted in Christ on the last day when they come before God? All the verbiage, all the cursing, all the hands held up in defiance, they are going to be verbally incapacitated and will bow before him. It will happen. I don't know about you, but that helps me not worry about getting in the last word. And I need help on this. Not getting in the punch. Not getting in the best retort. You can trust God with those. Learn as much as you can. Reply wisely. And sometimes strongly if need be. But don't you dare worry that the people who resist him their whole lives are going to be forced. They're going to not be able to say a word as they face Jesus Christ. And that is a terrifying scene. Terrifying. Now, Luke records something really interesting here. In Luke 20, verse 39, this is a little glimpse of hope. He says, some of the scribes who were listening to all this said, Teacher, you have spoken well. What happened? Yeah, just what you're thinking. Because you'll notice in the next thing that happens here, the next confrontation, one of the scribes came and ask which commandment is the most important. And that's the guy that Jesus commends at the end. Because he recognized Jesus speaking the truth. I don't know about you, but I almost want to... Hallelujah, hallelujah, that God works in ways that we just never expect. Even their own plan backfires. Well, what do we expect? Of course, he's talking to God in the flesh. You have spoken well. But the Sadducees did not have the courage to question Jesus anymore. Most were still not convinced. Some people will never be convinced, no matter how good your arguments are. Why? Because they would not be convinced. I'm going to read Psalm 2. I think we need to.
As we read a couple of these questions, especially the first one, think about your own heart, the people you know. Are they asking these questions today? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus was really speaking next. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you, and ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Yesterday, many of us had the great privilege of knowing the presence of God in the face of great grief. The surety of his promise. The faith that stands in the midst of it all as he walks with the people Everyone who is grieving, which is probably every person in this room. And he will continue to walk through those places of grief. But don't get the, forget the point. The believer's body will be raised to be reunited with the soul already in the presence of God. And we have no idea what the great rejoicing of heaven sounds like. We get a little taste of it when you guys sing the beautiful music like this morning again. But how great is that going to be? The older all the old people get in this room, of which I am now classified, the greater the joy to know that your faces will not only be seen, but we will be fellowshipping together forever and ever. So if you've got something against somebody, you might as well get it taken care of now. It's not going to last for pastor death. Let that be a testimony, which is why so many non-believers showed up yesterday. Wasn't it? It was. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, through Christ your Son, we get to be yours, belong to you. We have the privilege of knowing you through his person and work, empowered by your Spirit. 
And we just want to say that there's no greater blessing, there's no greater comfort on the face of the earth and that we do have you to look forward to forever and ever. You are sufficient. You are completely faithful. You provide grace for us in whatever circumstance there is to walk with you through it. And for that, we give you praise, honor, and glory. And we pray that you would work in the hearts of many, most, all of the people that heard your truth and that heard it through Kelly's mouth and the mouth of her family and through services, whatever situation you communicated it in. And we pray that you would open their eyes and save their souls that they would ask the right questions, be able to because of your redeeming work in their hearts. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Can't get out of the Psalms, and I'm not apologizing for it. I just thank God for them. Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. I think we've heard this psalm so many times for a very good reason. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Amen. You're dismissed.